praising the Lord for the for the the healing work that God has done in, in Jeff uh, this week, as Craig announced. So I need to continue to pray for him. He he did want me to pass on um, some sincere thanks for all the prayers and and uh, so so thank you for that. And let's let's keep praying for him. He's obviously coming home, and that's great. Um, He'll still be a while before, you know, before he's uh, able to do everything that, that we're used to him doing. So we need to keep praying for him. But if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Jeff kicked off this chapter for us last week with that short introduction slash overview. And we learned from that introduction that the theme of this chapter, as we've been going through this book, we've been giving you a theme for every chapter. And the theme for chapter 10 is our mind and having the proper mindset for ministry. So today we're going to dive into the first six verses of chapter 10 and see how having that right mind applies to spiritual warfare. And if you've been around here you know, for any length of time at all, or if you've been a Christian, uh, for that matter, for any length of time at all, uh, you un- un- have undoubtedly heard that as believers, we are constantly in and dealing with a spiritual battle and spiritual warfare. Um, there are many verses throughout Scripture that, that tell us this. There are many verses throughout Scripture that call us soldier. We looked at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 last week, but it's a great example for us. Where Paul was telling Timothy, he says, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Another, as we see in, in, in the book of Philemon, in, in chapter 1, there's only one chapter in the book of Philemon, verse 2, says unto our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the, house, to the church in thy house. He calls him a fellow soldier. You know, there's, we see different words throughout Scripture. Fellow laborer is one that we see a lot, but here he says fellow soldier. And when it comes to fighting in this spiritual battle, this spiritual war for the Lord, it's something to which we've been called, right? There says that that the fellow soldier that that we've been called, we've been chosen, 2 Timothy chapter 2 says. And we see that it's something that's not presented to us as an option. Fighting in this war. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12 says, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. This is something we've been called to. This is something we've been chosen for as we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's not presented as optional. At the moment of salvation, we are enlisted into God's spiritual army, so to speak. Right? We used to teach this to our kids. In Sunday school in a song, right? You remember that song? Okay, I've sung a song before. And, and you know, there were unfortunate videos and whatnot. But I don't care. I'm going to do it again. You guys can keep your phones down. You guys can sit, right? You know the Lord's army, right? Right? Ready? Are you, who, who knows it? All right. We'll start with this. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never.
fly or the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. All right, yeah. Listen. Listen, it's kind of hokey, but there's some good messages in some of those songs that, that prepared our children's minds for what they were going to face in this world. And there's a point to that. Because in this world, we are in a spiritual battle. And we have been called to fight as a member of the Lord's army. And we've been called to war and to stand and to resist and maybe to even flee sometimes. That's why, you know, people look at the Bible and they, they don't, they can't understand, they can't put it all together. And they look at, and they call God the angry God of the Old Testament, right? Because Israel's always fighting and always warring. Well, well. The Bible, if you would actually just read the Bible, tells you why. For in 1 Corinthians chapter, chapter 10 tells us that all that that happened is a picture for us. And so Israel, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, constantly fighting battle after battle after battle after battle. You know why? Because we are constantly fighting battle after battle after battle after battle. And God has some things to teach us throughout all of it. We have to be prepared for it if we are going to win this fight. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. And that's what this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 clearly shows us, how to fight to win. And so I'm just going to tell you here this morning from the very beginning, winning is living the sanctified life. It's living according to biblical principles. It's glorifying God. It's God on the throne of your heart and on your mind rather than you. And everything that this world, that your flesh, and that the devil have to offer you challenges every aspect of you winning that battle. And as we talked about last week and other times in our sermon in many other sermons, that battle begins and it's really fought in the mind. And I'm going to show you a little bit of a progression and how it moves and where it moves. But it starts in the mind. And that's where you're fighting this fight, in the battlefield of our mind. We're going to see that today, but we're going to see it in a little different way than maybe normal. And we're going to see how to fight in order to win. So let's read the passage and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who am in presence and base among you, but being absent and bold toward you. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as if we had walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ, and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the great report on Jeff this morning, and he'll be going home. So we do continue to lift him up, continue to pray for him. The blood clots aren't an issue, and his counts continue to, to be where they need to be. And so we just want to continue to keep him in front of you, and, and uh, we're so thankful for what you've done already. Pray that you be with us this morning. Pray that your Holy Spirit does the work that only he can do uh, to be our teacher this morning, Lord. I pray that, the, that what I say is, is clear as you've given it to me, but, Lord, I can't teach anybody anything. That's just what your Spirit can do, so I ask him to do it uh, this morning. But I pray that everything is said is true to your word. I pray that it's glorifying and honoring to you. And I, or I pray that we're challenged, we're encouraged, and we're edified by it. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Okay, so like I said, we learn how to fight to win in this passage. We learn the, the, the path to victory, and, it's, and it, it's, it starts with, and it's about having the right mind. And that right mind, it begins with having a right attitude. All right, so I'm, I'll talk about a progression here in a little bit, but it starts with the right attitude. So our first point is this. We need to fight with the right will. Now, to fully explain this, I need to set the context of this chapter for you. And, and Jeff did talk about this some last week, so I won't belabor it. But you, you do need to understand it. It's very important. And it's going, to be under, it's going to be important to when we get to the end of, of this message as well. But starting in, in chapter 10 of 2 Corinthians, where we're at today, we see a shift in, in Paul's writing style here in this book. 1 Corinthians was obviously a rebuke from beginning to end. Paul's just like, listen, you guys have this messed up, you have this messed up, you have it all messed up, you got to get it right. It's just a, it's just a barrage, just a, a rebuke at, at all the stuff they were doing wrong because they had a lot of really key things messed up. And so he was very strong in what he had to say to them. And then what we learn from, from what he writes in the book of 2 Corinthians is that between those two books, between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, they cleaned up a lot of what was messed up. And Paul praises the Lord for that. And so most of the first nine chapters of 2 Corinthians is written in, in that tone. He commends them for their changes. Uh, he encourages them in giving. He speaks fatherly and lovingly uh, many wet times. But once we get to chapter 10 and what we'll see through the rest of this book, through chapter 13, is a change. And Paul goes back to, to saying some things very directly to them. And it's because there were still some among them, some false teachers, some false accusers, that were in their midst that were saying things about Paul and about the things that he taught and about the way he lived. And they were saying some things about Paul. And so there were still some Corinthians that weren't on the right track. And so there were a few, a few antichrists kind of still running around among them. And so once we get to, to chapter 10, Paul wants to address them. And he wants to address them very directly. And he does that. And he, but what he, else he's doing is, is he's, he's addressing everyone else who still might be giving an ear to them. As well, he doesn't know who it is. And so he's addressing everybody. Specifically those speaking out against him and then those that might be giving an ear to him. And I point that out because this lets us know that spiritual warfare comes at us from many different angles. Many times it's just our own flesh. And our personal temptations and the strongholds in our life, we're going to talk about that when we get to verses 4 and 5. But other times it's people. It's relationships. And it's the attack of others. And we have to know how to handle all of it. Now, the good news is we handle it all the same way. We handle it all the same way through this path that we're going to lay out this morning. But it's good for us to see and be able to acknowledge and understand the different attacks that our enemy uses against us and how he attacks our weaknesses. Because if we don't understand and recognize how he's attacking us and that these attacks are in fact spiritual, then we won't respond spiritually. And as we're going to learn today, that is, that is key to victory. And so first, we have to fight with the right will. We have to fight with the right attitude. And this is the hardest thing to do when you're fighting with other people. 
when you're listening to the wrong people or when other people that you personally have a relationship are fighting with, having that right attitude and having the right will, it's a struggle. But look at how Paul handles it. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. He says, Now I, Paul, myself, beseech you or beg you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am base among you, but being absent and bold toward you, but I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence wherewith I think to be bold against some, which think of us as though we've walked according to the flesh. You see, in, in these intro verses, Paul has the right attitude, which is the, the will of his heavenly Father. Right? It was the same thing that Jesus dealt with. He's like, you know, God, can you take this cup from me? But, but not my will, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done so this is what Paul is saying here this is his attitude he comes to them in the meekness and the gentleness of Christ now Paul is human because the second half of verse one is him being sarcastic I think we learned about that a little bit last week because what he says is exactly what he's being accused of he says you know who me you know apparently uh, in my presence I'm base among you but I'm I'm really bold when I'm not with you And and that's said in some sarcasm And then in verse 2, I like what he says at the end. He says, you know, listen, I don't want to have to be bold towards you. I want you to just get it right so that I don't have to be bold when I see you face to face. But then he says this statement, wherewith I think to be bold against some. He's saying, listen, if if the truth be told, there are some of you that I do have a mind to be bold towards. And I'll be honest, I... I love seeing that from Paul because I feel like it gives me some sort of license from time to time. But, but the truth is, here's the truth. The thrust of Paul's message, and I'll explain how we know this, is those, that, that very first introductory sentence. That, listen, I'm begging you in the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Paul's message was, I need to confront you about this, but I'm going to do it in the spirit of Christ, in his meekness and in his gentleness. And I'm going to stand for truth because I have to. That's what God has called me to do. I'm going to stand for truth, but I'm going to do it humbly. I'm going to push aside my will, my desire for revenge. And I'm going to confront for the right reasons, which is just that, standing on the truth of God's word. He wasn't standing for himself personally. That's what you have to understand. When Paul is, is taking time to defend himself, as we'll see as we get through this chapter, it's not that he he. He did it out of revenge, or he was standing for himself. He was standing for the truth of God's word that everybody needed to hear. Because he was leading them. And he was, at this point, he was leading them from afar. And so, as that apostle, as that leader, he's like, Look, I need to stand for truth, not for me. Because with respect to himself, he decided to go low. Because he didn't bite back. He didn't answer back. He decided to go low just like Jesus. You see that in Matthew 11, verse 29. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. You see, that's the right will, the right attitude with which we need to fight our spiritual battles. Because, again, like I said, he didn't bite back. Paul didn't engage in a tit-for-tat back and forth with his accusers, with these false teachers. He didn't follow their lead and accuse them of some sin like they did him. He didn't follow their lead. He followed Christ's lead. And that's hard to do when you're in this type of disagreement with another person, especially another believer. 
You can't do it. It's impossible to do if you aren't willing to push your will down and push your will aside and allow God's to control you. Because you see what the accusations were that, that, that these guys were making against Paul? First of all, they accused him of being hypocritical. That's verse 1. They said that Paul was weak when he was face to face to them, but he was very bold when he wrote to them. And the accusation was, Paul, you're a hypocrite. You're not willing to say to our face what you'll write in a letter. And listen, that's certainly true of so many people today on the internet. And that is hypocritical. But that wasn't true of Paul. And the immorality that Paul addressed harshly in 1 Corinthians had entered the church after he had left. And so he had to do it in a letter. It's not that he wasn't willing to do it in person. Now, Paul said he didn't want to have to. That's what he said in verse 2. And that's, that's the right spirit. There's, there's times that we have to confront certain people in certain situations. And, and listen, that's never a pleasure. Or it shouldn't be. But sometimes you have to do it. And you were willing to do it. And Paul was willing. He was willing to do it in person. It's just that time and circumstance dictated that it had to be done in a letter, in written form. So they were accusing him of being hypocritical. And then second, they accused him of being carnal. And listen, those are two pretty strong accusations. Because that's verse 2. He was accused of walking according to the flesh. Or carnally. And this is the Apostle Paul we're talking about. But again, instead of fighting back with similar words or similar accusations, instead of responding in, in kind, Paul just moves on to verse 3 to address all the Corinthians. He addresses those false accusers, but he addresses all the Corinthians and how they are to fight spiritual warfare, because that's exactly what it was. So he continues to address the false teachers by telling them that their mind isn't right. And this is how they need to fix it. But again, in doing so, he's instructing all the Corinthians. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's instructing all of us. And that leads to our second point. Because here's what Paul knows. And, and, he, and here's what the Holy Spirit wants all of us to know. That in order to be victorious in spiritual warfare, not only do you need to fight with the right will, you also need to fight in the right war. Look at verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Paul says it right there in verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. And when you combine this, verse 3, with verse 2, you get the two biblical meanings of the word flesh. Because in verse 2, the use of the word flesh refers to the spiritual body of the believer. Like you see in Romans 8 and many other places. But one example is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. That's talking about our spiritual body. That's the same thing in 2 Corinthians 10.2. Paul was accused of, uh, of walking according to his flesh in a spiritual sense. But then in verse 3, Paul says, yeah, I, I do walk in the flesh in a physical sense, not spiritually. Do not confuse that. Those are two separate things. 
And we shouldn't confuse it either. Because while it's possible for Christians to walk according to the flesh spiritually, we don't have to anymore. It's the great thing about what God does in, 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 in our lives at the moment of salvation. You see, before you got saved, you have to walk according to your flesh. Your physical flesh and your spiritual flesh are one. They're tied together. You have no choice but to walk according to your sinful flesh. That's all that you have available to you. But once you get saved, the Bible talks about a spiritual circumcision that takes place. That operation without hands. That's Colossians 2.11. It says, In whom also ye were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, and putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And, and we don't have time to dive into what all that means, but, it, but God literally comes in and he separates your flesh from your, your soul and your spirit. It's the sealing work of the Holy Spirit. And now you can walk according to the new life you have in Christ. You see, before salvation, you were stuck to your flesh. You were stuck to your flesh. But after salvation, you're only stuck with it. And you now get to choose. You get to choose how you're going to walk. If you're going to walk according to the flesh or if you're going to walk according to Christ. If you're going to walk according to that old man or the new man, which is Christ. And that choice rears its head every time you find yourself in spiritual battle. So you have to make sure that you're fighting the right war. Because you can't fight back physically. This war is spiritual. The weapons we have aren't carnal. They're not fleshly from a physical sense. No, they're mighty through God. Amen. They're spiritual. And listen, I find today that too many Christians are fighting in the wrong war. For the wrong kingdom. And they're fighting over a physical kingdom. A physical kingdom of heaven with physical tools and physical words. Instead of fighting over a spiritual kingdom of God with spiritual tools and spiritual words. You, say, you see today that the kingdom of God is in us as we are in Christ. Luke 17 verses 20 and 21 says, And when he was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom should come, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God cometh not with observation. You're not gonna see, you can't look out and see it. It's not physical. Neither shall they say, lo, here, lo, there. No, it's, it's over here, it's over there. No, for behold, the kingdom of God is within you. That means the war today is spiritual over the souls of men. Trying to bring others into the kingdom of God with you and trying to help those already in Christ to mature into all God has called them to be. That's the war that we're in. So anything that distracts us from that is a losing battle. But how many times do we find ourselves dealing with and fighting within and without over physical things, over secular things or worldly things or sensual things? It's not our fight. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on thee, that thou mightest, by them, mightest war a good warfare. And what is that warfare, Paul? 
Is it physical or spiritual? Well, he tells us in verse 19, it's holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning their faith, have made shipwreck. It's spiritual. It's holding faith. It's, it's holding the faith that God, that we have in Christ and sharing that with others. Bringing people up in the faith through discipleship. It's, of course, spiritual. So we need to make sure that we're fighting the right war. Now listen, it's not called war for nothing. And if you're in a war, there's certain equipment you need. Right? Everybody knows you can't bring a knife to a gunfight. It's just a bad idea. It's a bad plan. But it's the same with this spiritual war that we are fighting. And that brings us to our third and, and, and our final point. And that is you have to fight with the right weapons. And I know it feels like we're moving pretty fast, and we are. But don't confuse that with finishing early, because we won't. <laughs> this is going to take a while. Uh, look again at verse 3. We'll try to blow this out in some detail. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. And then you see this parenthesis in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And, and what else do these things do? They help us in casting down imaginations. And every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. And having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now I love verse 4 talking about these weapons. Because while it doesn't even tell you what they are specifically, it, it just tells you that, that they're mighty through God. So most of you already know what they are. Jeff even mentioned it last week. But before we even get there, let me just say it's only two and they're mighty they are mighty through God. That means they are fully sufficient. These two weapons, two weapons and two weapons alone, they're fully sufficient. They are all-encompassing. They're all you need. And, and there's, a, there's a movement today, even within Christianity, that, that would say these two weapons, of course, it's the Word of God and prayer. There's a movement that would say it's not enough. And to help people with their problems today, you know, you, you, you got to rely on all these other things. That the Bible, there's, there's an attack, there's a, you know, there's always been attack on the authority of the Bible. Um, there's also an attack today on the sufficiency of the Bible. So there are those that would say, well, yeah, the Bible's authoritative and what it talks about it just doesn't talk about everything. And that's a direct attack on the sufficiency of Scripture. It's fully sufficient covers everything every issue and if and listen I'm telling you if you think that it's not if you if you think well man I, how am I just supposed to to have the Bible and prayer and that's enough listen the devil's winning if that's your thoughts you need to cast those thoughts down we're going to talk about it we'll get into it so let, let me get let me just let me just get into it but listen it doesn't matter your battle it doesn't matter your enemy it doesn't matter how hard they may be fighting against you you have all you need to be successful in this war with the weapons of our warfare that, that God provides. And again, they are, of course, the word of God and prayer. That's what we need. That's what all of us need. And that's the only thing. Those are the only things we need. 
And we get this from another great passage on spiritual warfare. It's Ephesians 6, maybe the most popular. Verses 10 through 18 lay out the full armor of God, right? We, if, if we are to put on armor, you know, that means we're, we're in a battle. We're, we're in a fight. And, and we're not going to take time to go through all that. I, for today's discussion, I just want to look at verses 17 and 18, that at the end they get to the weapons. So we see the defensive armor, including the helmet of salvation. But then we see in verse, verse 17, we have a sword. We have a sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. And then we see our other weapon in verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, watching whereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So we have the sword of the spirit and we have prayer in the spirit. So the Holy Spirit of God is intimately involved in these as we use his word and we use prayer. And these verses define for us our weapons. The sword is the word of God. You see that other places. Hebrews 4.12 is a popular cross-reference. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And to be prepared for the battle, we always need to be carrying this in our hand and hiding it in our heart. And there's so many beautiful pictures in the Old Testament, the book of Nehemiah. You can go, I think it's in chapter 4, and they're building that wall. And it said, you know, they had uh, the, the, the sword in one hand. They're working on the wall, and they have a, a hammer or whatever, the tool in the one hand, and they have the sword in the other. They're always prepared for the battle. We always have to have it, carrying it in our hand in a spiritual sense, hiding it in our heart. I love Psalm 149, verses 5 and 6. It says, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. And the other weapon is prayer. And, and, and prayer is something that sometimes gets left as an afterthought. But I can tell you it's, it's just as important. There's a story in Exodus 17, I think I've shared it with you before, but it's about Israel fighting with Amalek and the Amalekites. And, and we don't have time to, to go into all of it, but Amalek in the Bible is a picture of your flesh and its battle with the worldly system that's ran by the devil. So we have our enemies and, and Amalek is a picture of that fight. And in Exodus 17, Amalek comes and attacks Israel and, and Moses sets out the battle plan. And I want you to see what it is. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 13. It says, Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. And Moses said unto Joshua, here's the battle plan. Choose us out men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses had said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were heavy, and they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat there on, and Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands. They held him up physically, the one on the one side, the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down to the sun. And Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with what? With the edge of the sword. So do you see what's going on? It, it, this is such a beautiful picture. The Old Testament is filled with these beautiful pictures for us in our battle. It, this represents our spiritual battle as a Christian. And Moses says there are two things we have to do in order to win. Joshua has to go fight with the sword. And I have to go to the top of the hill and commune with God. The rod of God represented God's power. 
And Moses had to hold it. He had to connect with it as he connected and communed with God at the top of that hill. And for us, that picture of Joshua using the sword is Jesus in us using the word of God. And that picture of Moses at the top of the hill is us in Jesus using prayer. But what you have to see is that both are necessary. Like I said, we talk a lot around here, as we should, about the Word of God. But we can never neglect the power in prayer. Did you see verse 11? Look at it one more time. And it came to pass when Moses held up his hand, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. There wasn't victory until both weapons were utilized properly. They go hand in hand. Why? Because they provide that direct line of communication with God. We talk about this in our discipleship lessons. The word is how he talks to us. Prayer is how we talk to him. It's communication. And I've never been in the military. But I know guys that have been. I know guys that have been in war. And I've watched plenty of movies. And you know what those movies taught me? One of the first things the enemy attacks is the communication channels. They know that if they can cut off communication from the command center to those on the front lines, that it's over, that they've won. Guess what? Our spiritual enemies know that as well. He knows that he cannot win. He cannot defeat you unless he breaks down your communication with your commanding officer. And he's fighting every day with every resource he has at his disposal to get you to lay your weapons down. Because he knows it's the only chance he's got. But do you know what the shame is? The shame is he doesn't even have to work hard with most of us. Most of us lay them down before he even attacks us. And we get up in the morning and we don't even touch base with our commanding officer. We don't get our marching orders for the day. We don't seek or ask what he has as an agenda for us for that day. No. We walk out of our house and we face this world without any communication with God, leaving our spiritual weapons at home, no armor, no weapons, defenseless and unable to fight. And you wonder why your life is like it is. You just keep strolling through life hoping for the best. Come on. It's not going to work. It's not good enough. That doesn't get the job done. And listen, the physical weapons that you choose, they don't get the job done either. Do you know what most Laodicean Christians pick as their weapon of choice to face this world? And, and this is going to sting for some of you. I probably shouldn't do it till after the 25th. <laughs> it's who I am. You might as well know now. Because the answer to that question, the weapon that most Laodicean Christians pick to face this world is Starbucks. It's coffee. How many times have you heard, I'm not even joking, how many times have you heard someone say, I can't face the world, or I can't, don't even talk to me until I've had my coffee. And listen, I know that's kind of a joke, but I also know it's kind of true. And I don't care if you need coffee in the morning. I need coffee in the morning. But I need to talk to Jesus more. I need his word more. 
Because the truth is there are too many Christians that never, never miss a morning coffee, but regularly miss time with the Lord. And if that's you, I just got to say you're not prepared for the battle. You've given up the only weapons you have available to you. And so you're not ready to fight. Lamentations 3, verses 23 through 25 tells us it is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. I want you to hear this. It's of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. That we're not consumed. Because His compassions fail not. They're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in Him. The Lord is good unto them that wait for Him. To the soul that seeketh him. There's some conditions in there. See, those mercies are new every morning. And do you know how you get those mercies so that you're not consumed that day? So that you're not fully defeated that day? You get them in his word. And I know that because the Bible tells me. Because Psalm 85.10 says mercy and truth are met together. You know where you get the mercies to make it through your day? You get them through truth. And John 17, 17 says, thy word is truth. And those mercies are available every morning. They're there for you. Every single, God's not lying. Because great is his faithfulness. So you get them as you meet with him in his word. But also in prayer, because at the end, in verse 25 of Lamentations 3, it says, The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. That's what I was talking about earlier, seeking God and asking him what he has for you that day. What is his agenda for your day? And listen, in the midst of that, you get to share with him all of your struggles and all of your supplications. Making your request known unto Him as you seek His will in all of it. What a precious time that is. What a precious time that is. So don't miss that. Don't let that be you because just look at what these weapons have the power to do. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, these weapons are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. This is a big one that we all face. A stronghold means the enemy has established a fortified position in your head. Remember, the battlefield is the mind. And we haven't spent much time talking about that, uh, that specific aspect this morning. We've talked about it before, but you can't lose sight of it. Now, there are two types of strongholds that you see in the Bible. First is secular, and the other is satanic. Secular, just worldly. It just started with an S, so it sounded better. But secular, satanic. And the secular are just those worldly things that we all deal with. Our, our, it's just our own will. Anything that takes the position that God is supposed to hold in our life. So it can be a sinful thing, but, but it doesn't have to be. It can be something that's not sinful in and of itself. Now, when we do this, we turn it sinful. But it doesn't have to be sinful in and of itself. But we allow it just to control us and just to grip us and where it has the priority that, that God deserves. So it becomes a stronghold. It's like that verse in Ecclesiastes that says, you know, a threefold cord is, is tough to break. And that's a bad, that's a bad paraphrase. But, but what that is, is like, you know, if you wrap a string around your finger once, you know, that's pretty easy to break. 
You know, you wrap it five times, you still might be able to break it, but it's a little bit more difficult. You wrap that thing a hundred times, forget it. Your fingers aren't strong enough. And it's just a tiny little thread. But that's what, that's what sin does, as you don't cast it down, as you don't use your weapons, as you don't renew your mind like we're going to talk about. Every day you do that, that cord just keeps wrapping. It just keeps wrapping to the point that it's got a strong hold of you. And you can't break free on your own. And so like I said, it can be a sinful thing. It doesn't have to be. It could be something that's not sinful in and of itself. And, and, you know, the best example in our culture is sports, youth sports. It could be a job. It could be a hobby. It could even be good things like your family. And we just justify these things in our head to the point that we've convinced ourselves that it's all right, that God doesn't mind. Where the problem is the instant anything, even if it is your family, if they hold a higher priority than the Lord in your life, then they've taken his position. And the moment it becomes an end in itself, then it becomes a God. The Bible calls it idolatry. And, and, and by the way, when we talk about spiritual war, we're to fight, we're to stand. There's some direct commands we have. There's two things you see in the Bible that we're told to flee from. It's fornication and idolatry. Those are things you don't even mess with. You just flee. You flee them. And yet these things, strongholds, become idols in our life. When someone or something replaces him in that position of glory, that thing by definition has become a God and it's a stronghold. And the satanic strongholds are those addictions, perversions, unnatural cravings outside of God's will. And they grip you and they hold you and they won't let go. And let me tell you, the only thing that will fight those off is the word of God in prayer. And in many of those cases, you need the prayer of others. You need the word of God in others to help you. And it's a process to get unbound. There's a, there's a good, we don't have time to even look there, but there's a good study in 2 Samuel chapter 5 to talk about how to break strongholds in your life. But you can do it as you get the mind of Christ. As you let it saturate your mind long enough, you can pull these strongholds down. You know, if I'm counseling someone that is, is something that has a full, especially if it's an addiction or something like that, I mean, we're going to put some people around them. We're going to do some things. But, but here's, what I'm going to, here's what I'm going to tell them. I need you to show up every time these doors are open. For six months, I need you to keep your mouth shut. Mouth shut and open Bible. And we're going to saturate your mind as much as we can and see what, see what the Word of God does in your life. As you are spending time in it, as people are putting it to you, and as, as you hear from, from what's being taught up here, the, the, the Word of God is saturating your mind. That's how you pull those strong hands, strongholds down. It always reminds me, this verse, it always reminds me of our um, invasion of Iraq after 9-11. When our ground troops finally took Baghdad. And you remember when the people, they threw the ropes around that huge statue of Saddam Hussein? You guys remember that? And it took a while, but they pulled down that statue to the ground. And that statue represented authority. It, it represented binding control of that nation. Saddam Hussein thought he was reincarnated Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, Old Testament king, but that's for another topic for another day. But that event was a visual representation of what the word of God and prayer could do in the life of someone who gives themselves to this fully, 
to this process. Someone who allows their mind to be freed from that type of oppression through saturating it with God's word and, and the prayer of, of themselves and others. And then we see these weapons also have the ability to cast down imaginations. Every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God. We need to understand the biblical definition of these things. So imaginations is not defined how we define it. How we usually think of that word. Imaginations in the Bible are almost universally bad. You get the idea of how bad they are from their first mention. It's Genesis 6-5. God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's imaginations. Biblically, they're evil. Starts in Genesis 6 and all the craziness associated with that chapter. Another time, maybe the third time, you see, you see it again in Genesis chapter 8. Third time you see a form of that word is Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. And all the craziness associated with that chapter. In Genesis eleven six, and the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained of them which they have imagined to do. You see, here's the process. Sin starts in our mind. It starts in our mind. That's why the battlefield is the mind. And it, and it wants to get a grip. And it wants to get you thinking things. It wants you imagining things that aren't true according to what the Bible has to say. And then once it gets a hold of the mind, it controls the heart. That's why you see the very specific wording of Proverbs 23.7. I want you to hear the words. For as he thinketh in his heart, not thinketh in his mind. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he, but his heart is not with thee. You see, it starts in the mind, but once sin has control of your mind, once it has a spot, once you've not renewed it, once you've not washed it with the cleansing of God's word, once you get it, stay there, it becomes a stronghold and it controls your heart. In, among the list of seven things that the Lord hates, seven things that the Lord hates, we find this verse, Proverbs 6, 18. It says, the Lord hates, and heart that devises wicked imaginations. So sin starts in the mind, but once it has hold, it controls the heart. And once it has your heart, so it has the mind, it has the heart, then that produces an attitude. And you start devising thoughts and wicked imaginations. And that attitude is always going to come out the other side as an action. It's the process you're fighting against. That's why you have to renew your mind because those evil imaginations have to be cast down. And you do it through the power you find in God's word and the power you find in prayer. It's Romans 12 too. Be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, how do you renew your mind? It's by washing it daily in the word of God. It's speaking of the church in Ephesians 5. Paul says that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. Most of you know these verses. But even if you know them, you still have to apply them. Because if you don't, it will catch up to you eventually. I want to show you a passage in Ezekiel chapter 8. And I know we're running out of time. But Ezekiel is the book of the captivity. It's after the southern tribes of Judah have been taken captive by the Babylonians in 606 B.C., right? And so I want you to see what God shows Ezekiel here. In chapter 8, we're going to read verses 5 through 12. And then he said unto me, this is God speaking to Ezekiel, that he said unto me, Son of man, lift up thine eyes now the way toward the north. So I lifted up mine eyes the way toward the north, and behold, northward at the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. 
And he said, furthermore unto me, Son of man, seest thou what they do? Even the great abominations of the house of Israel committeth here, that I should go far off from the sanctuary. But turn thee yet again, thou shalt see greater abominations. He says, see all the bad stuff that they're doing? This is what you can see on the outside. Now let me take you inside. Verse 7. And he brought me to the door of the court. And when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. And they said unto me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. And when I had digged in the wall, behold, a door. And he said unto me, Go in, and behold the wicked abominations that they do there. So I went in and saw, and behold, every form of creeping things, an abominable beast, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed upon the wall round about. And there stood before them seventy men of the ancients of the house of Israel. Even in the midst of them stood Jezaniah, the son of Shaphan, and every with every man his censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. And said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Listen to this question. Every man in the chambers of his imagery. For they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. And listen, this is a picture for us. Because whatever you see on the outside of someone... I can promise you it's worse on the inside. Because those imaginations, those chambers of imagery, they're evil. And they're evil continually. So I don't want you to think for a second that you're above this. I bet Israel never thought they would get to that place. And I don't want to think for a second that I am above this. Because I want you to notice something in verse 11. Do you know who was leading all this? The 70 men of the ancients of the house of Israel. And we don't have time to to study this. But if you will look at Exodus chapter 24, if you will look at Numbers 11, 16, you will see those 70 are the ones that Moses put in charge to help him lead. They would have been the ones with Aaron building the golden calf as an idol when Moses was up on Mount Sinai hearing from the Lord. It was the religious leaders of that day. And listen, I want you to stay with me as we bring this to a close. I promise I'll make it as quick as I can. I want to try to tie some things together and bring it in full circle. Because what we're talking about here is why this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 is so vital to us and our Christian walk. Because if you remember where we started, the context of Paul's message to the Corinthians was speaking against those false accusers and those false teachers who were speaking out against Paul. And in that context, you have to remember the context. He's telling the Corinthians to have the right mind. To have God's mind on this. And they need to be careful to pull down strongholds and cast down imaginations and bring captive those thoughts that go against the knowledge of God. And we're already out of time, so I can't even tell you about that. But the knowledge of God, that's God's mind. That's not knowledge about God. That's the knowledge of God. That is God's mind. That's the Word of God itself. So we're to bring to captive every thought that goes against what the Word of God has to say. And many times, those false teachers, those false accusers, those lukewarm Christians, they put those thoughts in our head. And if we don't pull down or cast down or bring captive, we're at risk for going shipwreck, like we saw in 1 Timothy 1.19 a little bit earlier. So here's the thing. It matters who you listen to. It matters who you follow. 
Are they people who know how to use the weapons that God has given to all of us? And are they living according to those weapons? Or is their weapon coffee? Because it matters. Because those false teachers of Israel's day led them to captivity. The opposite of what Paul says is possible in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. But let me show you one more Old Testament picture. Then we'll be done, I promise. This is involving Jeremiah, actually the only person who's called a pastor in the entire Bible. You can find that in Jeremiah 17, verse 16. But look at the encouragement God gives Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. But the Lord said unto me, Say not, I am a child. He's, he's, he's calling Jeremiah to the, the work of a prophet. And, and Jeremiah's nervous about it. And God's encouraging me. He says, Say not, I'm a child. For thou shalt go to all that I send thee. And whatsoever I command thee, thou shalt speak. Be not afraid of their faces. For I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. Verse 9, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put words in thy mouth. And I want you to see what those words do. See, I have this day set thee over the nations, over the kingdoms, to root out and to pull down and to destroy and to throw down and to build and to plant. And this gives us what a leader, a pastor, who is not a false teacher, can, can bring to the table. Because he knows how to use the weapons. The Lord's words are in his mouth in verse 9. And do you know what that guy can do? He can help you root out. He can help you pull down. He can help you destroy, which is the same as bring captive. He can help you throw down, which is the same as cast down. All through the preaching and teaching of God's word. The, the pulpit ministry here is a very important, important ministry that God gives to certain men. And, and listen, uh, this isn't, I don't want to make this about legalistic standards or anything, but this pulpit has a very important place in the center with the word of God as the, as the sole authority. And the man that's standing up here stands behind it, stands behind the word of God at the center of everything that's said. And if he doesn't do that, he has the, the, the potential to lead you captive. But if he does, he can help you to follow and apply. And, and as you spend time with the Lord yourself and you do that over and over, week in and week out, Wednesday night in, Wednesday night out, do you know what happens? You begin to build and you begin to grow and plant and you're sowing seeds for the right kingdom. And some of you might have noticed that two-thirds of that leader's job is negative. But it's worth it for the one-third that's positive. As you see people catch it and get it. And it all comes back to those weapons. And you want to listen to people who know them and know how to use them. And you want to follow people who are living according to them and applying them in their own life. Because that will help you, that will help me learn and apply. And then we can teach others also. That's discipleship. Listen, it's no mystery why God had the apostles in that early church in Jerusalem set up the structure of deacons. Why? In Acts chapter 6, verses 2 through 4, Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto him and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we, we may appoint over this business. Why? But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That's why. Because pastors and leaders need to know how to use the weapons that God has given to all of us. 
And as we see through those Old Testament pictures and Paul's message to the Corinthians in context, it's of vital importance to all of us. Because when we do, we're all set up for success. And we all individually have our own part to play. But in this dispensation, God works through the structure of the local New Testament church. And when you have someone you can follow that knows the book and lives according to the book and knows how to pray, get on that train, man. Follow that guy. And I promise you, for one second, I'm not making this about me. I don't, it's not about me. I, I, I hate it to even say it, but it's where God brought me in the study. It makes me a little bit mad. I'm a little irritated by it. Because <laughs> it's, it's not about me, but you need to follow someone that knows the book, that preaches the book, has a life of prayer. And man, if you find that... And the, 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 the power that God can do through a pulpit ministry of someone that teaches and then as you take that to heart and you apply it to your life and you get into God's word and you prayer, life will never be the same. Life will never be the same. We didn't make it to verse 6. We barely made it to verse 5, but we're out of time. So let's pray.